0: Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for Muncie First Brethren Church with Pastor Jim Garrett. This week we continue our series in the Gospel of John. When Jesus heals a man long crippled on the Sabbath day, he confronts the laws of man against the grace of God. Here's Pastor Garrett. So we are moving through the book of John in a way that helps us understand this invitation to examine Jesus, to examine the claims of Jesus, to examine the claims of God on behalf of his love or, or, and, and through the, the avenue of his love in the person of Jesus. And so we've seen it unfold and we've seen it in different ways as it's unfolded. Now we're going to see this, this um, in chapter 5 this move where there's more discussion that Jesus will have about his connection to the father and and the clear ramifications of that connection that he's not here by accident he's not just a, a person in history but he's actually he's actually the expression of god's love and grace and mercy the expression of truth and and he says that then again to the religious leaders where we see this confrontation happen in chapter 5. What we're going to have today is the setup, because that's what it is. Jesus heals a man that's been lame for 38 years. There's a whole lot of questions that come out of this, but he does it on the Sabbath day, and he tells the man to do something that is a violation of, of what they have constructed within their framework of what's allowed and what's not allowed on this day of rest. Who told you you could do that on the Sabbath day? I can hear the words echo. I mean, who is God to tell us that, that this is the way it should be? Who told you it's okay to do that or not okay? And, and, and by what authority? They didn't care that the man could now walk after 38 years of not being able to. They only cared about the fact that it somehow violated their their sense of what was right and wrong based on their rules. I think they had, they had a uh, oral and written tradition around the Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day is the seventh day. It's always a reference to uh, the, the creation week and then on the seventh day it says God rested, but he gave that rest, it says he did that for us. He didn't need to rest, God wasn't tired. He wouldn't be God if he got tired, but he is God in the sense that he says, I know what you will need. And so Jesus affirms that fact. He says, God didn't create the the man for the Sabbath, but rather he gave the Sabbath for people to enjoy him and nothing else. You don't have to worry about anything else. Don't worry about making money. Don't worry about provision. Don't worry about any of those things. Just enjoy him and one another. And that really was the only prescription for that day of rest. Now, we, we see different places where the Sabbath is, is addressed in Isaiah and Jeremiah, where the people had um, actually taken that day and used it as a means to knowing that others would be thinking that way. They thought, well, there's no competition. I'll do what I can do now because there's no one out there to, to, to vie for my services, to, to challenge my services. So they... They would go out and do those things, and so you see places like Jeremiah 17, Isaiah 58, and he says, That's not the rest I gave you. It's not so you can somehow benefit at others' expense, but quite the contrary, give, be, and, and Isaiah 58 really captures that. But the, but the basic premise is you're gonna, if someone's there, you do for them. And Jesus doesn't make that point as strongly here, but he does in other places about. If, if you on the Sabbath see someone in need, the Sabbath doesn't mean that you say, oh, sorry, I can't, I can't do that because it might resemble work. No, he says, the need is there. That's exactly what God would want you to do. It's to respond and, and in a way that would help to lift them up because that's what resting in the Father would look like. And, and by the way, I, I want to encourage you, and, and we kind of do this as a norm. But I've, I've been reading a book that uh, by a guy named Dallas Willard, who has he passed away this last year. But in this book, he talks about the um, hearing from God, and, and and he says one of the most important things we need to do in, in hearing from God is approach the scriptures, approach the Bible, and read that that from every angle, read it and know that you could fit into that, that God is indeed expressing himself in that context so that you can understand that God doesn't change and to be able to put yourself into that story and also to put the story into your context. That is very true of the Gospel of John. I think he was very adamant about that. So it's not just information but it's this, this information that contains that, that truth. So let's look here at chapter 5. We're going to go through the 18 verses. There's not a lot in this. Like I said, it's a setup for this challenge on the Sabbath, and we want that to, be, uh, to kind of be the backdrop for what Jesus then says in response to them because it says they persecuted him for his view of the Sabbath and that they wanted to do away with him. They conspired against him as a result of, of the claims that he makes. So it says, sometime later, and this is after the the whole account in um, the healing at the end of chapter 4, and and so we don't know precisely what what timetable it is. He went up to Jerusalem for one of the, the Judean festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Now let me add a note here going into verse 4. Some of your Bibles may not even contain verse 4 within the verse structure. And it might be at the bottom, or there will be a note. And, and that verse says this, that an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. This is one of those places that we have all of those manuscripts that that have been compared, and this verse showed up much later in in later manuscripts, but but was not contained in the manuscripts that were dated closest to the event. And so they have a decision to make. They don't pretend it's okay. They don't pretend that, that... This is one of those verses that they're saying that it was probably added later by an editor based on something, and we don't know what. So they include it for you to see, but they're saying that it does not appear in in the early manuscripts. And a majority of the early manuscripts, that's why they don't include it in the text. The Bible, by the way, is the only... I'll, I'll call it literature. It's the only document like this that will do this and say, here, by the way, is a discrepancy. We're going to note the discrepancy, but we're going to show you, or we're going to suggest what, what is there based on this, these set of manuscripts versus the later manuscripts. Does that make sense? So it's, it's like if I wrote a letter to you, and, and, and that letter got copied. And it was pretty accurate going up. And then someone later on down the road saw that and they thought, you know what? There's that part in there about uh, about whatever topic that we need to maybe add something to it. And so they put that in there. Well, then you start gathering and finding these copies of that letter that I wrote. And you go, wait a minute. That part wasn't in the early one. And what you would conclude is that that wasn't probably a part of the original one. And so you would make note of that. You realize how rare this is in the Bible. I don't want this to cast doubt on on the integrity of the Bible. In fact, it lends credibility to its integrity. Because you have have places that are like this, but we have enough manuscripts available to us of of the New Testament documents that we're able to say this is probably the way the original looked. Don't don't gloss over that. That may not be very important to you today, but when you you read someone like Dan Brown and the guy that wrote Da Vinci Code that tries to say, or Bart Ehrman, who is a a scholar who who says that a verse like this should tell you that you can't trust the Bible, that's, that's not the case at all. It's quite the opposite. The fact that we have that many manuscripts that we can compare and say that this is a verse that may... How many of you have Bibles that that's not even included in there? Most of you. And that's, that's, what, they, that's what has happened. And then you have a note at the bottom that may contain this verse, right? And then uh, an explanation that most early manuscripts do not contain the following. And that's exactly what they're saying. I think that's awesome. When I learned that and saw that 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 was true of of the Bible that we study, that that becomes very, very, um, it it just engenders that kind of confidence that, hey, we can be honest about what's there and know that it's it's good. So if you ever come across that, have questions, feel free to ask. And there are some bigger sections at the end of Mark. Uh, There's one that we will encounter later uh, with, the woman caught in adultery. Um, so so we'll, we'll, we'll come across those again. So in verse 5 then it says, there was one there that had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Here should be some questions. He wasn't the only one there. Why this man? How did, you know, who did he ask? How did he inquire about him there? That all seems to be implied within those two verses that there were some other things going on, but it does help us understand that it's not not Jesus snapping his fingers at everybody or it's not him going through and and hitting each of them on the head and telling them that they're going to be okay. But what we do have is this this expression for this man and, and Jesus responding to him and and did Jesus have to ask, or did what was, what was the conversation? But When he learned that he had been there the 38 years, he, or when he saw him, that's when Jesus said, do you want to get well? Well, that seems like a pretty obvious question, doesn't it? And, and you're going to notice something. The man's response is, but yeah, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. This man hasn't walked for 38 years. And Jesus doesn't tell him that, hey, well, I'll help you in. He just says, get up, take up your mat, and walk. We have no extra drama here. If I were writing this story, certainly making it up, there would be lots of things that I would add into this. But what we see is this, that the man was cured. He picked up his mat. He walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so, and here's our transition, the Jewish leaders say to the man, because they see him carrying his mat and walking, and they say, hey, this is the Sabbath. Who, that you can't carry your mat like that. And the man's going to say, well, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And so there's this little thing going on where he's going, "Uh uh-oh, am I in trouble? But wait a minute, someone just healed me, and I'm able to do this. So I'm going to tell them that's what happened, and their big concern is, who told you to pick up your mat and walk? Not who healed you, not who made it so you could walk, but who told you to walk today? Now, I want us to, to really connect to this whole dilemma because it might be the Sabbath day that, that sticks in the craw of the religious leaders of that day seeing this man, but we have many things like that in our culture today. Who, they will ask the same questions. Who says Jesus is the only way? Who says that his death accomplishes this? Who says my sins can be forgiven? Well, the man who forgave me. The man who died for me. The man who said I'm well. How dare you be so exclusive in your message? Those are the same kinds of mindsets that that trigger the same kind of questions and, 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 and offended at the, the idea that you would declare that Jesus is who he says he is. Don't point to anyone else. This man didn't even know who Jesus was. It's going to say, the man who was healed, he had no idea. Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. And, and this... again, we see some things here that are unique. We don't have details that that describe this kind of interaction. Jesus slipped away in the moment, but later in verse 14, he finds him at the temple and he says to him, see you are well. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. There's implications here about the nuanced conversation is Jesus saying, spiritually you will not be well. I think he could include that. But he, he is saying to him, and we don't have any more detail, be aware of what's most important. Be aware of what this means and the priority in your lives and examine it from that perspective. Not just going with the flow now because you're able, but allowing the flow of who God is To determine how you go forward. The man went away. He now told the Jewish leaders that it was him who made me well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. How dare you heal someone on the Sabbath? How dare you? And remember, we're going to see it in John 9. He's going to this is where Jesus has the blind man. I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but, but it does fit in, in the framework that we have to construct. He makes mud and puts it on the blind, man, blind man's eyes. He doesn't do that anywhere else. But he does that there. Well, what is making mud? See, from their strict understanding of work, it was work. Their strict understanding of Sabbath, making mud, spitting on the ground, which is what he does, and making mud, putting it on his eyes. The making of mud to put on this man's eyes, that was considered work. Therefore, a violation of the Sabbath. It wasn't a violation of God's instructions. It was a violation of their understanding or their application of those instructions, which had nothing more to do... It had nothing to do with anything other than them having power over people. It was religion, no relationship. Jesus honored the Sabbath in the way God intended. Remember we saw, I believe in Mark, the man, they brought this man with the withered hand to the synagogue. It's the only place, I think, in Mark 4 where Jesus says it says that Jesus got angry because he knew what was in their hearts. They were trying to set Jesus up to see if he would actually do work, which for them at this point was just healing the man. And so he he has the man come before him, and he says, reach out your hand, and he restores it, and immediately they've caught him. They've trapped him. Because he dared to reach out and do what God would want him to do on their Sabbath day. Jesus understood what it was intended for. God's expression of his desire for relationship with him and one another. To enjoy him, to draw close to him. He said that's all it's for. And instead they turned it into a bunch of rules and regulations. You know they had, like, you, you, could, you could not walk a certain distance on the Sabbath day, so they had it measured out. So if you were only allowed to walk, let's say one mile, then you could plan your trip a half a mile out and a half a mile to get back home. Anything more than that, you were violating the Sabbath. So to get around it, they also had rules that said, but if you go out the day before, and let's say you, you can go out and take, you want to make a longer trip and you need to travel that day, take your stuff out a mile or, or whatever the limit is, set your stuff there so you don't have to return home and then you can continue your trip. You can go further on the next day or you know, take your toothbrush out the night before, whatever. Um, you, 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 had, you had all of these things that they would make allowances for, most of them to suit their own needs, never had anything to do with what God really intended. In fact, and let me just say it this way, if you wanted to walk eight miles on the Sabbath and spend time communing with God and walking was the way you did it, God would have said, that's what it's there for. It wasn't labor to get something for you, it was labor in the sense that you were just, this is the way you connected to God. And that's not a stretch. That's not me reading into it. It's, it's allowing that what God said it's there for to be what it's there for. But, but there was a key dynamic that that would miss. He wanted us to do it together. So everyone was kind of in that context. Not everybody had to walk, but that was fine. He didn't apply those rules. He just said, don't go and do labor to get something just be willing to receive by being with me. So because he was doing this, they persecuted him in his defense or as an apologetic, Jesus said to them, my father, this is important. This is a transition verse. This is one that you probably should underline. My father is always at his work to this very day. The father is always working around us. That's the operating principle. Never forget that. Jesus said it. God's working around you at every moment. And he says, therefore, I am too. Later, he's going to say, I only do that which I see my father doing. I only say what my father says. And by the way, if you don't honor me and receive me, you do not honor the father and you can't and and do not receive him. Likewise, if you reject the father, you reject the son. This is, the, this is why the claim of exclusivity is not ours, it is Jesus. But he's saying it's exclusive so that you can enjoy inclusively all that God has offered. He, it's all of himself. Everything that he is in the person of Jesus. To go somewhere else is to miss what God is giving. To go through Christ is to know what the Father is giving. That is so important. So I don't apologize for saying Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Why not? Who said it? Not me. Jesus. No one comes to the Father but by me. And when he's giving that dialogue, that the the night he's betrayed, that he dies the next day, this is what he's telling his disciples. Don't be afraid. Everything that God has for you is offered in me, and it's even going to be good that I go away because then I can give myself through the Holy Spirit to you that where you are, that's where I will be with you. Boy, these are c- certainly big truths. But it starts with this idea that God is always at work, so Jesus said, I'm working. What's the implication, by the way? If you're challenging what I'm doing, you're not just challenging me, you're challenging the Father. Guess what? They know exactly what he's saying, because in verse 18, this is early in his ministry, folks. For this reason, they're already trying to kill him. They hate everything that he's saying about himself, what the Father is claiming through him, what that means for him, and... and Not only was he breaking their Sabbath rules, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself what? Equal with God. Today, it just blows my mind that there are people who say, Jesus never claimed this. He never claimed to be God. He he never, he wasn't claiming those things. Oh, yes, he was. And everyone around him knew what he was claiming. And at the end, when they killed him, they knew exactly what their, their accusation against him was clear, precise, concise, and distinct in that he was claiming to be God. That was their accusation before Pilate. And this just moves us forward because Jesus does not go, Well, wait a minute, guys, before you get too upset, let me, let me modify this just a little bit. He doesn't modify it by backing up. He modifies it by going forward and saying, oh, you think that's bad? How about this? I only do that which I see my father doing. Yeah, he's my father and I'm watching him. I'm keeping in step with him. And you know what? I only say that which I hear my father saying. He's going to die on that cross only because that's where the father has asked him to go, and he says that's the expression of that life and love and truth. It just blows me away. That's why when you read what Paul says in Philippians, that he didn't didn't see this equality with God as something to be grasped, held on to, clutched. The verb there is that he emptied himself. He emptied himself of that claim. And so while he had every claim to who God was and the power and the authority that was there in that structure, he says he took upon himself the nature of a servant. He became like us so that he could be obedient unto death, even death on a cross. You see, that becomes very significant when you start putting this all together and Jesus addressing the religious leaders of his day by saying, and you know what? <laughs> you wanting to kill me. Later in this chapter, he's going to say, you read the scriptures because you think in them you have life. They testify about me. And you won't even come to me for life. So what good did it do? If you're, if you're not willing to accept God's message and the life that he is offering, and you reconstruct it, you, you, you create the, the framework you want, the box you want him to fit in, Jesus won't fit there. And he's going to say to them very clearly, you don't know this God you claim to obey. You don't know the God you claim to honor because if you did, you would honor the Son. To dishonor the Son is to dishonor the Father. Those become very weighty words, especially at the point that we step back and examine our own lives From that perspective. What are we doing with Jesus? Because ultimately that's what John is saying here. I'm presenting to you the Messiah. The claims of that Messiah. And what that means for you. What are you going to do with him? And if you reject him. You need to know that it's a rejection of the father. Period. So. How do you think Jesus would respond to this. I'll call it, because it's the first thing that popped into my head, this mamby-pamby stuff about I believe in God, but you don't have to accept Jesus. What do you think Jesus would say? You can claim whatever you want, but if you don't accept the Son, you have not accepted God. Whatever God you believe in is not the God who loved you and gave his life for you, period. No one comes to the Father except through me. You reject me, you've rejected the God who has loved you. But but we're so pluralistic in our culture. How dare you say that I can't believe in God? That's why you have to deal with the claims of Jesus. He says you can't believe in God without knowing him. So I'm not going to I'm not going to I don't know how people get so comfortable saying, well, he didn't know what he was talking about. Maybe you would be, I mean, which camp would we be in? Would we be with those saying, oh, he's not fitting into the box we've constructed? You know, the scary thing is, Revelation says that when Jesus comes back as a revelation of God's truth and final judgment, they're going to try to kill him again. That ought to shake us to the core. They're not going to deny that he's coming. They're not going to deny who it is. They're just going to say, we don't want him. That's exactly what was being said here, and it's going to be in an expanded form. When the world sees and, and will say the same thing, how dare you? How dare you? I hope for us we're like, what were you thinking? But I'm so glad you love me. I don't get it. But I'm glad I've got it. I don't I don't comprehend it, but I'm glad I can apprehend it. He's put it all there before us, that by faith it becomes that real to us. When you go forward, and I encourage you to do that, when you go from verse nineteen and start seeing all the way down through uh, the rest of the chapter, it's Jesus speaking, and he's he's gonna he's gonna put some real clear boundaries up about this truth and what that means and who he is. Chapter 6, he's going to feed the 5,000. There's going to be those in there going to look for him. He's going to leave and go to the other side of the lake. They're going to truck after him, and they're going to find him. He's going to say, you're only looking for me because your bellies are full. Don't go after that bread. Go after the bread on whom God has set a seal of approval, the bread of life. And then he spends the rest of the chapter, many verses again, many uh, a big section talking about what belief is. It's either in him or you have no life at all. Father, may we indeed humble ourselves before you. Examining, I, I, I know there is an attempt by those around us to try to um, control the narrative that we think Jesus gave, and yet it's so clear, set before us. And your invitation to know you by faith in your Son who has given himself for us, that you made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we could become your righteousness. Yet, Lord, we continue to, to realize that That verdict is before us, the light has come into the world, but the world just loved the darkness more. And I pray that that would not define or describe us, that we would not be be pulled into uh, uh, into that way of thinking, but indeed, Lord, that we would allow the truth, the foundation, the framework of the life in Jesus, your love in him to shape us. Forgive us where we fail. We confess our sins to you and acknowledge your mercy that as far as the east is from the west. We love you, Father. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.